Sales Tuners, Episode 67, Pete Caputa, CEO at Databox. If you're thanking people for their time and, and you're begging people for calls and you're chasing people for deals, then you're wasting a lot of time that you could be using to help somebody that actually wants your help. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that get sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Thomas Edison, who said, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to just try one more time. In an odd string of events, today's guest, Pete Caputa, is the third engineer turned salesperson I've talked to in the last couple of months. Pete is most well-known for starting and building HubSpot's channel sales team, which is now a $100 million business. He was there when there were only 15 people. Today, he's the CEO of Databox, a platform that helps companies track their key performance indicators regardless of what software they're using. Before we dive in, I want to say a quick thank you to our sponsors. You've heard me talk about them for a couple of months now, but you have to check out Costello. It's a deal management platform that aligns frontline sales reps, managers, and VPs so they can work together to consistently close more deals. They help reps get the right deal information from prospects, give reps and managers visibility into the quality of every deal, and help sales leaders understand what's working and what's not. Check it out at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 67. But now let's get to the conversation where Pete talks about his weekend treasure hunts at estate sales. It's kind of a, a grim thing, but when someone passes away and the children or family don't want their things, usually the family hires a company to come in and basically sell everything. But the stuff you can find there is is kind of amazing. Like I've bought a bunch of artwork for very short money that's worth some good money. It's a kind of like a treasure hunting type thing. It's a lot of fun. Pete, in this show, as you know, we talk about the behaviors, attitudes, and techniques that have led to your success. But I want to start with that. What is your sales process today? What is Databox? And, and why does a typical customer decide to buy from you? Databox is software. Software is a service. So you literally just go to our website, click sign up, and, and start using it. What it does or what it helps companies do is pull all of their performance data into one spot and then allows them to view that data on any device. So companies uh, very commonly hook up like their Google Analytics with us, say their HubSpot account or another email marketing account, uh, maybe some SEO, search engine optimization tools, of course, a CRM tool like HubSpot or Salesforce, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then they can go in and they can design the reports that they want with the metrics that they want from any from any of those tools. And then they can download our mobile app. They can put TVs up on the wall. Uh, they can, of course, access the data or the dashboards uh, through the web interface as well. Uh, and so we basically help people pay attention to their business a lot better. Once they get all that data in there, they can actually go in and pick any metric they want from any data source and set a goal. Uh, so we're big into helping companies like set reasonable goals and and track performance to goal uh, to make sure that they're getting where they want to go. 
you know, it's kind of funny to me. I'm a big fan of Databox, just looking at it, watching your guys' videos and how you are trying to take this to market. I've gone back in some of my notebooks going back to like 2005, 2006, when email marketing really just started to take off and, and Google Analytics was urchin, you know, back in the day. And I have yeah. sketches of this idea. It's like, why isn't there a central database where I can pull all these different things? And as you said, set those KPIs that are going to pull from different data sources and display that. So I love it that you're doing it and that it's finally here. I think it's amazing. Mm. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's not an easy problem to solve, uh, but uh, the company's been at it since 2012, and we raised about $4 million, and we're trucking along now. So um, so it's uh, we're having fun and uh, helping a lot of companies get m- much more data-driven. As you should be. And I, you know, I'm really excited to talk to you, Pete. You've had an incredible journey from your own startup to uh, building this channel, this amazing channel at HubSpot, to now being CEO of someone else's company. I want to talk about that journey. But first, let's go way back. How did you actually even get into sales? I had a startup that I had um, started like nights and weekends in 2001. We built some software to help event planners promote and handle registration for their events. It all started really from me planning events for social reasons so that I could meet people and realized there was no solution online at the time that really helped someone handle word of mouth marketing and event registration. So we built that up. Um, I started pitching it, got a lot of no's. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was an engineer, so I'd go in and explain things to people, just thinking that they would buy in and buy. Uh, and that didn't work. And so I got to the point where I'm like, I need some help here. I had run into uh, a sales coach along the way through my networking and through uh, like hosting events of my own. Reached out to him, ended up uh, hiring him to be my sales coach. And I think I was making, we were maybe making like, I don't know, a few grand a month at the time, if that. And I plopped down like 12 grand on a credit card so that I could uh, get into his sales training course uh, and get coaching from him. And one-on-one coaching from him, so that's how I got into sales. And and he ultimately, you know, taught me how to sell well. I got the revenue up in the business. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. The business didn't work out after about six years. We shut it down. Uh, we just couldn't get it to be uh, profitable, and I wasn't able to really, really raise any any money at the time. So. But that's how I got into sales. That's that's crazy. So one of the things that, you know, I, I always like to, and I told you this before we started recording here, I always look back at my guests, if we've had any exchanges online, uh, you know, in the course of history, if you will. Uh, and I think it was the second or third tweet that you and I ever exchanged. You actually made a post on the HubSpot uh, blog. I know you don't remember this, but you made a post on the HubSpot blog about everybody, every salesperson should hire their own external coach. And yes. I could not have agreed more with you at the time. Uh, I hired my own coach back in 2007 and it literally changed my life. Not my career. About the same time as I did. Yep. That's right. Yep. Completely changed my life. So uh, for those of you out there listening, you should do it as well. Uh, if Tiger Woods has a golf coach, if LeBron James has beyond just his own basketball coach, you should be having a coach as well. I love that. 100% agree with that one. Yep. Yeah. And, and Rick, Rick, guy's name is Rick Robert. still coaching salespeople. Um, works with a woman named Carol Mahoney. They have a firm called Unbound Growth. Uh, and so they're still helping people with that. But same as you, like he changed my life. He taught me how to sell. Uh, he, his son actually is uh, Mark Robert. I was just going to ask it, if that was the relation to Mark. Okay. Yeah. So um, Ma- uh, Rick uh, had introduced me to Mark, his son. About a year before I joined HubSpot, and uh, just when HubSpot was like barely a good idea, and I started talking to him, then I was selling to small businesses. They were selling to small businesses. I gave them some pointers on what was working for me. They actually ended up incorporating some of that into the early product. And then after they raised their Series A, 
uh, Mark reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in joining the team. And I said no at first um, because I had my own thing. But then a month or two later, my partners and I had decided that we were we were about done working 80 hours a week and not making any money. And I ended up calling Mark up and, and joining HubSpot as the fourth rep. That's incredible. So you, you were already in Boston. Um, I, yeah, I lived in Worcester, which is about 50 miles west of Boston. I actually commuted in two hours every day. Um, not every day, four days a week uh, for like five, six years before I moved a lot closer to Boston. Oh my goodness. That is absolutely incredible. So you've done uh, so much. And as you you know, kind of said, I read it in your, in your bio, you're most well known for building that channel. But uh, when you did that, I mean, you were going against the grain. That's not what they wanted you to do at the time. What was that notion, you know, that, that perpetuated you to go do that? Yeah, I think they were like, at the time, they just would have preferred that I just, you know, called on small businesses, sold them direct and, and shut up and did my job. You know, I never had a problem hitting quota at all as a rep at HubSpot. But for me, I saw the opportunity to leverage marketing agencies to sell the marketing software. Obviously, makes very logical statement nowadays. Uh, but back then, it, uh, it wasn't an obvious thing. Like the, the way SaaS, the software as a service companies went to market was either you're through outside sales and inside sales and you know now inbound marketing right or then inbound marketing that was the vision for the company and so getting partners involved met a lot of resistance because both uh a few of the executives mike volpe uh and brian halligan and a bunch of others had experience with partner channels and they just didn't want to do that at the time they they wanted to build the direct model out um and kind of ignore the partner mo- partner opportunity for a while while they while they focused there so how were you able to get them to give you, guess, I guess, this opportunity to go do it? Because you saw something and, you know, because you know, one of the things I've read about, you know, why sell to a customer when you can sell to a partner who then sells to their customer? Totally get that and building the channel. But how did you get them to give you that freedom? Um, well, Hustle is a pretty entrepreneurial place. Like, uh, even though they didn't want me to, like, launch a program or anything at the time, uh, they didn't restrict me from calling on agencies. And so I did that and, and, you know, long story short, got to the point where I was doing two X, three X sometimes what the top direct reps were doing in a month. And so at that point they're like, all right, well, what's going on over there? And as I did that consistently, they got their, the story changed. Right. And it went from, from no, absolutely not. We don't want you to launch a program to maybe we should consider it to the point where they asked me to like pitch how I would do it. Uh, and once I did that, um, second or third time, at least they, they relented and said, all right, do it. Just stay within these parameters. Well, I know one of the things that you're doing now, but you also had to do then was build a repeatable process. But I got to ask you, Pete, how do you actually do that uh, in the early days when there's no data? Uh, like how do, you, how do you build a, a process when you don't have the data to back it up yet? Well, I mean, you've said you have to build a repeatable process and I totally get yes. that it needs to be repeatable, but how do you know that this is the process to build that is going to be repeatable when you have nothing? To start from, there's a lot of trial and error. It's a bit of a catch twenty two. Right? If you don't have a process, you can't measure it. If you don't, if you don't, uh, and you can't write the process if you don't have the data to back up the process. But uh, it was just a matter of applying, I think, good selling principles to what we were selling. Really figuring out what the pr- the problems were and the pain points that we were solving. Uh, testing positioning statements, building out qualification scripts, figuring out how to qualify for BANT in, in a way that was welcome, and figuring out what. Features matched what pain points and what price points we would sell to to different uh, types of buyers, and just iterating through that altogether, you know, over a few years, we, I think um, 
we figured out, I shouldn't say over a few years, over a few months we had things figured out, but but over time we had a lot of data to back up what we were doing. And and that's ultimately what helped us, you know, grow the team to hundreds of sales reps. One of the things I just heard you say is uh, how to qualify for Bant in a way that's welcome. Uh, I, I hear and read so much stuff online that Bant is dead. We shouldn't be doing Bant. I, I couldn't disagree more with that. But tell me what you mean by that, doing Bant in a way that's welcome. I think Bant is alive and well. I, I probably did write an article at some point saying Bant is dead. Uh, I don't remember exactly what I wrote in there. But I do think qualifying on budget, authority, needs, and timing are absolutely critical. However, I think if you are going to go and hire a bunch of sales reps and even especially a bunch of BDRs and go and ask them to bank qualify opportunities, it's like the it's the least enjoyable conversation for a prospect ever, right? Like you call them up, you pitch them your value, you ask them if they have budget, you ask them how they would decide. And not only is it like an unwelcome conversation, but it's it's uh it's a conversation where I think if you do it too soon, prospects will actually lie to you, right? If they if they do have budget, um they uh, they might not tell you that because then they want a good deal in the end. If they don't have budget, they might might uh, tell you that they do because uh, they want to keep talking to you because they're getting value out of the conversation. So I think um, Bant is not the right place to start, especially early in a, in a conversation uh, with a prospect. And so we developed a framework we called Goals, Plans, Challenges, Timeline. Uh, and what we would lead with was either challenges or goals. And so I think a good sales conversation starts with, do you have this challenge? Or what is the goal and how are you going to get there? Not, um, I have a solution, do you have budget for it? Uh, and so we taught our, our, our sales reps to lead with goals and challenges uh, and um, current plans as well, right? Because if you can help someone improve their current plan, uh, then they're much more likely to keep talking to you. You wrote plenty of articles, so there, there, I could not by any stretch read all of them, but I read many of them. One that I really stood out to me is the nine obnoxious phrases that make prospects want to hang up with you. And one of the phrases in here that you're just talking about is, do you have budget for this? And it was interesting to me, you said, if you ask that budget question too early, prospects are likely to lie to you. It's my opinion, the prospects are always going to lie to you and you have to, to, <laughs> to, to dig through that quite a bit. But let's talk about some of these other uh, phrases that you know make people want to hang up on you, what is the biggest thing that you've seen yourself do or your team do or other sales rep do that just makes you cringe? I hate when sales reps say, I wanted to. It's like such a crutch that it, and it's almost like dismissing whatever the prospect just said, right? The prospect says something and then you're like, uh, oh, I wanted to. It's also so easy to stop doing it. They can just They can just frame it as a question. Would you be interested in or would you like to? Uh, and just letting the prospect make that decision. It's, it's just an awful phrase. Salespeople use it probably, like some salespeople use it like 20 times a call, right? Uh, I hear it over and over again. Well, now that's you, probably my biggest. Now you're piece. making me self-conscious because I think I've already said <laughs> on this show, I oh, think, I think I've said okay I want to. <laughs> I think it's okay on a podcast. Although it is like, a, I think those, those phrases are almost so ingrained mm -hmm. in sales person's language or lexicon that they don't even realize they're doing it. Uh, and so when you like, I think it's important for salespeople to practice the opposite. Um, and so I, even in one-on-ones when I had with reps, they'd say, I wanted to, I'd say, is, is there another way you could say that? <laughs> so I've always be pushing people on that, but. It's interesting. What I, I highly recommend everybody record their calls and go back and listen to them. One of the things for me with this podcast is now going back and being able to listen to every single episode and find those pet phrases, those filler words, my ums, or you know, I, one of mine I know is that's interesting. Uh, fortunately, I can edit some of that out, but 
it's totally true. And when you start to see that it's there, then that's the only way that you can overcome it. One of them, uh, Pete, that you talked about that I completely agree with you on is thanking prospects for their time. What does that mean to you though? And why is that such a bad thing in your opinion? Uh, well, I think if a salesperson does a good job, then the prospect should be thanking them, right? If the salesperson uncovered a challenge or helped them identify a better plan to get to their goal, or or even in many cases, help the prospect clarify what their goal is, then they did a service to them. Or if they introduced them to a solution that's going to solve their challenges or help them fulfill their goal uh, a lot quicker or less expensively or whatever, uh, then the prospect should be thanking them. And so when a salesperson thanks a prospect for their time, it's almost like saying, hey, I got more out of this call than you did. Uh, and that's just not the right dynamic for a salesperson prospect relationship. I talk about it from the concept of equal business stature, right? I have something that's just as valuable. My time is just as valuable. It's a pleasure that we both get to connect here. And so I, like I said, couldn't agree more with you on that one. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the things I would say to a salesperson to drive it home would be like, let's do the math. Like you're selling to a small business owner that maybe takes home 80 grand a year after, after taxes, right? How much do you make? And it's like hundred to 200, right? Who, whose time is more valuable and should, who should be thanking who? Uh, and so I think it's, uh, it's important to consider that your time is valuable and that the more people you spend time with wisely, like the right prospects, the more people you'll be able to help. Uh, so I think it's another way I look at it. It's like if, you, if you're thanking people for their time and, and you're begging people for calls uh, and you're chasing people for deals, uh, then you're wasting a lot of time that you could be using to help somebody that actually wants your help. When I do some of the coaching with my team and my, and my reps, one of the things I'm talking about is like, hey, would an executive do or say the things that you are doing right now? And so whether you're looking at your outreach cadence, your phone calls, uh, what you're saying in emails and all those types of things is I just ask that question, would an executive do this? And if they wouldn't do it, they're not going to respond to you doing it or they're not going to respond well to you doing it. It's so critical. Yep. Like me, I know that you have a natural tendency to question authority. And when, <laughs> when you're doing something unique, it's hard to ignore the conventional wisdom, but you have to do it, especially in a world now where it seems like there's best practices for everything. But how are you doing that? How are you overcoming what everyone else thinks you should do? Well, I guess I'm at a point in my career Well, I only have a few people to answer to, like my wife uh, and family, right? And then uh, I have a few investors and I have a lot of flexibility now. I didn't always have that in my career. Uh, like the first six years of my career, you know, I wasn't really into what I was doing. I didn't really see a path to, to doing the stuff that I was passionate about. But once I got into, once I just started doing stuff and started setting short-term goals and implementing short-term plans, um, I got a lot more confidence as I, as I was able to kind of build things and hit milestones and 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 hit goals and. Uh, and just had more confidence in in my own ideas as as uh, as my career prog progressed. You talk a lot about creating goals or setting goals, creating short term plans, and then obviously with DataBox, you know, visualizing that and being able to track toward that progress is critical for that. But can you go into more depth and, and let someone uh, let some of our listeners know what are some of those actual quantifiable plans that you're setting? I know you said putting numbers on them is very important to you, but just kind of explore that a little bit. Like what should we be doing early in our career to start setting those, those paths? Well, I think like the first thing to think about as a salesperson is like picking the right job, right? I think the, 
if if you're if you're working in a company that doesn't have a good plan in place, it's going to be hard for you to achieve your personal goals. I got lucky, I'd say, at HubSpot because when I joined the company, like there was there was 15 people, there was a little bit of traction, but not a lot. Um, it was a calculated bet, which I thought was a great bet at the time. When I look back, I'm like, oh, it was kind of risky, but obviously worked out really well. Uh, but so I think it's important to kind of pick the job, make sure you you believe in what you're doing, and and that the the economics of the of the company are, are worked out to a point where you're not taking a big risk. After that, it's like obviously quota is important, um, but the way I operated was never around quota. Like for me, I worked hard because I thought HubSpot, the company, would have a good outcome, and and while the paycheck would be good and be very comfortable, it wasn't going to get like. Just collecting a paycheck and check in a sales job wasn't going to give me the financial freedom and flexibility that I wanted uh, in my life. And so, um, for me, it was all—it was always about how do I hit my numbers for the company, but also progress my career, take on responsibility, earn more equity uh, as the company, um, as I help the company, you know, go public. So, for me, it was—it was the personal goals that would drive me more towards what my what my actions were on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. Of all of my friends who you know have been at companies that have gone public, getting them to see those pictures uh, at, at the you know New York Stock Exchange and and on the floor and that kind of stuff, it's amazing. Yeah. I've seen some of the, your pictures that you have floating out there online. It's just such an incredible feeling to have been able to be a part of a team that's done that. And speaking of, of teams, uh, Pete, I know as you look at the leaders that you've been able to surround yourself with, one of those things that I've read uh, about you is the importance of motivating a team. Now as the CEO, you're completely responsible for that. But what does that actually mean? How are you motivating a team and what is the importance of it? When I look back on my HubSpot experience, uh, I think there was always, it always started with the vision for the company and going public, was, public wasn't necessarily the vision or the goal. It was always about helping customers solve their problems, putting that first, uh, and also building something together as a team, right? Like we're building, we're building a business that's going to be around for a long time and we'll be able to talk about that on podcasts forever. <laughs> and so that was kind of um, a big piece of it. And I'm trying to duplicate that, I think, at Databox. I think we're, we're making progress for sure. Um, that, you know, communicating what that vision is and, and why we're doing it and who we're helping and why we're helping them and how we're helping them. Uh, and then building that as a team together so that, you know, everybody at the company has equity in the company. So, you know, there's a someday that maybe that'll be worth something or be liquid for them. In the meanwhile, you know, we're making, we're making a living and supporting our families. Uh, and so I think it's important to kind of have those conversations, like what motivates individuals, how do you tie that back to the company's vision? Um, is what they're doing contributing to the company? Do they feel like they're having an impact? Is that recognized? And just constantly talking about goals and whether they're important, and whether we're hitting them and all that, I think motivates the team a lot. Pete, I want to dig more into you know all the great successes that you had at HubSpot. You had an amazing team around you. You guys had a fa fantastic product. You created the phrase inbound, uh, which is just fantastic. But you went from sales rep to director of sales to VP of sales. You built out the channel. What, what were some of the skills or the behaviors that allowed you to have that success and that growth? I had a sales coach that I think gave me a lot of good fundamentals. Um, I'm a big fan of, uh, I don't know if you know Dave Curlin and his book, Baseline Selling. That's actually who I, uh, Rick Rick and Dave worked together at the time when I hired Rick. Uh, and so I think that was really important is to have really good sales uh, foundations right uh, in place before I could even dream of managing salespeople. I don't think that's 
a given in many sales organizations, especially larger organizations. I think you can go from salesperson to sales manager without necessarily having the best sales skills. Um, and so I'd encourage people to get that coaching, really learn best sales, best practices, apply it to their job. Um, from there, like going, making the leap from sales rep to sales manager was a pretty big one. I remember sitting in a meeting with Mark Roberts, like right before he was going to promote me to, to be a sales, sales manager. And we were talking about, you know, hiring a few reps and, and a few reps were going to join my team from the other teams. And he's like, well, how are you going to teach them what you do? I'm like, I don't know. I'll just get on a call with them and, and listen to them do it. And I'll coach them like your dad did, (laughs) right? Rick coached me. I tried that and it worked out really well for the first two reps. They were really sharp. They picked up really quick. They were really motivated. And then I added like four, four more reps to the team and it worked for two of them. Didn't work as well for two others. And I didn't really have a, a backup plan on it. And so getting on calls with six reps was not feasible. And that's when I first had to build sales process, document the sales process, build some sales tools uh, that helped those reps like do the do the job without me being on every call to back them up or coach them on every deal. So what was it what was it about those two reps that that it didn't work for that was the problem or the challenge? Some of the reps also weren't as uh, curious or consultative as others. Uh, they went from the direct funnel to the channel funnel. And in the direct funnel, it was pretty much, it was a lot more of a quick qualification process and a demo where it was kind of the opposite with the channel. We had to really probe into the the marketing agency's challenges and quantify them and, and help them set goals because they hadn't done it themselves. And then teach them a new business model, not just software. So they had a lot of prior context to the world they were selling into. Yes. Let me ask you this because this is, I think, relevant for you now at Databox, but it probably was with you at HubSpot as well. It seems to me, uh, Pete, that today's sales reps are not getting really any training, but they're definitely not getting sales-based training. They're getting product-based training at the organizations they're going to. But how, besides hiring an an external coach, how do they get up to speed with just the sales process in general? I feel like it's a lost art. I agree. Especially if you're a salesperson joining a larger sales organization, it's easy to actually think you learned sales. Um, But in reality, that company has brand awareness, they have lead flow, they have existing customers you can sell into. And I think it gives a lot of false confidence to salespeople. Uh, But when you're joining an earlier stage company, I think sales principles are really important because you're kind of figuring out how to sell to them, like what what matters to that prospect. You certainly don't have brand recognition uh, and all that. So uh, I think it's really, uh, I agree, there's there's a little bit of a la- lost art there. We hired a lot of salespeople, and what we found um, worked best was somebody with relatively minimal experience that we could teach both sales skills and product knowledge to. I mean, the first thing we would do is teach sales skills, uh, and then product knowledge would come. And so, uh, like, if you're a salesperson and your organization doesn't prioritize that, I would encourage you to hire a sales coach, first of all. Go to an organization, get sales training. There's lots of them out there. Uh, and you know, if, if you want to start a little easier, like start with a bunch of sales books. I think sales, like there's sales book. I literally picked up a sales book at an estate, estate sale, actually, <laughs> um, like from 1908 and started reading it. I'm like, holy crap, this is the same stuff. It still applies. In 2001, right. So it's all still, it's all still very relevant. Um, so I think, uh, it's not too hard to go out and, uh, and learn, learn the lost art of selling. Well, I I definitely like that, Pete. I've got to take a quick break so we can say thank you to our sponsors, but when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales sooners. You don't go away either. We'll be right back. 
Pipedrive is the sales CRM built by salespeople for salespeople. I love it because it allows me to visualize my pipeline, highlighting opportunities and potential problems, ensuring I don't drop the important activities and conversations needed. And the managers I work with love it because it's simple and they don't have to nag their team to actually use it. But sales sooners, don't just take my word for it. You can check it out for yourself for free for 30 days at salesooners.com slash pipedrive. We're back and it's time for the money round. Pete, are you ready for the money round? I as ready as I'm gonna be. Yep. Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? (laughs) That assumes I'm exceptional. Um, I would say um, setting goals, setting short-term goals, and staying maniacally focused on those goals and not being distracted by other things. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Read a bunch of sales books uh, and, and document my sales process. Understand the pain points that that people will buy for and, and really figure out how to uncover those. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? I love to win. Uh, I don't obsess over losing. In fact, I coach a uh, boys soccer team and, and I go out of my way to to tell them that it's not important whether we won or lost. It's that we, um, we worked hard and that we learned something. What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Baseline Selling from Dave Carlin. It is uh, sales fundamentals written from the perspective of baseball. Uh, so if you don't understand baseball, it might be a little hard to, to, to grasp. But if you think of the sales process as uh, four, four bases uh, that you need to get through, um, it's a great analogy and you know, he's got like pinch hitting and all kinds of other things that are in there that he, that he has analogies for as well. So it makes it fun. Sales tuners. If you'd like to check out Pete's suggestion of baseline selling for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. There you can sign up for a free 30 day trial of audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book. I think I'm going to have to go pick up baseline selling right after this. So Pete, what is currently at the top of your bucket list? I'm going to spend the next five years building out Databox. I'll probably be here much longer, but like I'm going to spend the next five years working really hard building it out. And after that, I'm going to take a bunch of time off and spend it with my my wife and son. Uh, My wife wanted to travel the world and I want to give that to her. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? Set goals and hit them. I can't imagine being employee 15 at HubSpot. I've admired that whole organization for many years, and I'm happy to see the stock at $80 today after getting to buy after the IPO at just $30. If you want to connect with Pete, you can find him on Twitter at PC4Media or on LinkedIn at Peter Caputa. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, trial and error. In the absence of data in the early days, you have to lean on good selling principles. What does that mean? The only thing prospects care about are their problems, not yours. You have to work diligently to understand your buyer and figure out how they talk about their pain points. Doing so will allow you to test different positioning statements and align your features not only to their pain points, but also to your own price points. Number two, qualify with goals and challenges. Qualifying with Bant may be the least enjoyable conversation for a prospect, especially when it's done too early. Oftentimes, prospects will lie to you either to get off the call or lie to you to keep you on the call so they can steal information from you. By leading the conversation around what their goals and challenges are, you're able to better determine whether you should continue having a conversation at all. Number three, 
quit thanking prospects for their time. If you've uncovered a real challenge or helped a prospect identify a plan to get them to a goal, why would you thank them for their time? Think about it. If they got more out of the call than you did, shouldn't they be thanking you? The idea behind this is to maintain equal business stature as opposed to thinking you're less than them. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thanks for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. And they stay there. And they stay there. Why is abbreviated such a long word?